Welcome back to OHSU's eMigCast. This is Mari, and this week we're going to try something new. I've got a case, it's a real case, but it's been de-identified, and I'm going to talk through it with a local expert, Dr. Rob Hendrickson. And to be clear, Dr. Hendrickson has not heard this case before. So for the purposes of this episode, I'm having him pretend to be the on-call ED doc, but I'll stop him and have him explain some of his thinking along the way. We'll walk through it together and see if he and you can figure out what's going on. All right, here we go. Okay, let's get started. Here's the case. We've got a 20-year-old female coming to the ED with a chief complaint of confusion. The patient's unable to provide much history, but she's accompanied by her husband, who does have some backstory. He reports she called him at work earlier that day to tell him that she just wasn't feeling well. She wasn't specific about any symptoms, but she just sounded off, and so he left work to come check on her. And when he got home, she was on the couch sleeping and pretty difficult to wake up. When she did wake up, she was saying coherent but nonsensical words. At that point, he called 911, and the EMS brought her to the ED via Code 3. So a few things um, first is, you know, <clears throat> when I get in the room, I would want her to get some vital signs and get her on a monitor. She sounds fairly confused. He was having difficulty waking her up, and I would want to assess her airway, how she's breathing, and then, you know, check a pulse and get a blood pressure. So do you have vital signs? A BP of 71 of 40, heart rate 130. Temp of 36.9, respiratory rate 15, and O2 sats of 100. She sounds like she's fairly unstable to start with, so I would want to get some help from uh, the rest of my colleagues in the emergency department. Uh, have a nurse uh, or two nurses come and help me. She needs two large bore IVs. And uh, while they are getting those IVs, and I want to start a fluid bolus, <clears throat> see if we can get her blood pressure up. Um, I would like to just assess her airway and make sure her SAT is 100%, but I want to make sure she's taking deep respirations and her, she's not obstructing her airway if she's altered. She's protecting it right now. Great. Fantastic. So it sounds like while, the, while we're getting IVs, while we're giving that fluid bolus, <clears throat> I have a moment to talk to the husband a little bit more. I guess before I answer that for you, what do you think is most likely just based on, like, this is a 20-year-old? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think of it as a couple of different ways. The first thing I think about is what is going to kill her in the next little bit. That's why I wanted to know the vital signs. And, and in fact, if in the next five seconds get a history that she has diabetes, <laughs> I'm going to want to have a sh- blood sugar uh, when the nurse draws the blood before I give that fluid bullets and things like that to try to make sure that we're sort of stabilizing her immediately. But I think in this age group, 20-year-old, I'm thinking about an ingestion. Um, uh, if the time court, you know, certainly certainly could be sepsis from pneumonia or, well, the SAT's normal, any other source of infection. So that's one of the things I really want to think about. With the altered mental status, think about meningitis and things like that. Hypotension, think more about sepsis. Okay, great. Thanks for that. So why don't we go ahead and see what questions you'd ask her in a history. I think the first things I would want to know is, how fast did this come on? Was she completely normal this morning? Has she had a fever and a cough and a runny nose and all those things and a headache and a stiff neck <laughs> for the last couple of days? Or is this very, very sudden and onset? Another big piece of history is what did the house look like? Was there any empty bottles uh, in the trash can? If 
this was a 911 call, <clears throat> usually the most important person to get a history from, in this case, is the paramedics. Because as opposed to spouses, they are actually trained to think about these things and trained to look in the garbage, <clears throat> uh, look next to the patient. Um, they're oftentimes for ingestions and overdoses, they're oftentimes empty bottles or um, other signs that something might have happened. In the case of an injection drug user, there might be a needle you know, uh, or paraphernalia near the patient. Um, and there might be signs of trauma. There might be blood on the floor. She may have fallen and have a subdural hematoma or something like that. So uh, the paramedics are really important to get the, you know, the husband, in this case, really important, but paramedics probably even more important. So unfortunately, you had a med student kind of distracting you with questions during this, and the EMS has left. They gave the report, but they didn't mention that in it. Um, the husband had also uh, had just seen her on the couch and hadn't thought about it, so hadn't looked around the house, um, but is willing to go home and check. I think that would be great after we get a little history from him. So... Any, um, anything going on with her at all recently? Has she been depressed? Does she have a history of depression? What are her medical problems? What medicines is she on? So we ask her husband and find out she's mostly been feeling pretty well physically. No fevers, coughs, headaches, things like that. She doesn't have a history of diabetes or really any chronic health issues that he's aware of. The only thing is that she does have depression and she's been taking a medicine for that, but he just isn't sure what it is. Are there other medicines at, at home? Does anyone else have any medical problems that she might have access to other medicines? Nothing really significant. There's kind of the normal stuff at mm -hmm. home um, as far as aspirin and Tylenol and mm -hmm. um, over-the-counter <clears throat> stuff. Okay. So, you know, I think my... Um, the history is really pointing toward uh, medications at this point. I think with no history of fever and headache and runny nose and all those things over the last couple of days with a fairly sudden onset of um, the symptoms and with the history of depression on her new medication, um, she is at higher end, the age group, she's at very high risk for the Sabina ingestion. So that's probably top on my list, although I still, you know, we still have to leave all the other things, traumatic subdural hematoma and things. They don't quite fit as well. They don't usually cause hypotension, though they could with increase in cranial pressure. So I'm going to kind of target into that a little bit, <clears throat> though in the back of my head, and this is sort of the time when I do this, is sort of, you know, make my list of things that I want to do. Um, I want to check a blood sugar. I want to give those fluids. I want to get an EKG. Um, I want to send some blood tests. Uh, and I'm going to want to get a CAT scan of the head unless I have some... Um, reason uh, not to at some point uh, because she is altered and hypotensive. So those are all the things I sort of put on there. And the labs I would get would be um, mostly general laboratory. I don't think a CBC and a metabolic panel is particularly helpful in this type of case. Other cases of metabolic pan uh, other cases of altered mental status, it could be you know low or high calcium, low or high sodium. Um, I think in this case that would be very unlikely to all of a sudden be altered from your uh, electrolyte abnormality. So probably less important. But then thinking about overdoses and acetaminophen level and a salicylate uh, concentration. Um, and then um, let's get back to our patient and see how she's doing. <laughs> and let's see if I can do an exam on her. All right, so you would set those labs to be cooking, to be drawn before you even go in the room. 
Um, well, in some, I, I was kind of picturing myself standing in the room already, and because we already assessed the airway. So I think it's important to get in the room and patients who are critically ill. Um, but what generally happens in, in the emergency department is, um, you know, you have a team there and you ask the nurse, can you put two large bore IVs in and while you're doing it, can you draw labs? And then you can put the labs in or do a verbal um, order for all those labs. So I think the lab orders I would put to the side. I'm kind of going in my brain how I would do it, but if there's a choice between standing in the room and making an, a lab order, I would be in the room for sure. The labs are not going to change anything in the next 10 minutes, and standing at the bedside, you could actually detect something. Uh, and I want to see her heart rate come down and her blood pressure come up very, very quickly. I think that makes sense. So before you get into the physical exam for this patient, what areas of the physical exam would you focus on if you suspect a toxidrome or overdose? Sure. So um, in many cases when the physical exam is, um, especially in overdoses, can be very, very helpful. It's not going to tell you exactly what they took. It might help you group it into a... Um, a group of medications that they might have taken, but I think most importantly it helps you group things so that you know what to do. Um, and so I would go back and if she was confused, um, uh, look into her confusion a little bit more. Is she hallucinating? Uh, hallucinations is, um, you know, associated with anti-muscarinic or anticholinergic toxicity. Um, the pupils, the reason I asked about those is they get big. Um, they get big with sympathomimetics like you know cocaine, methamphetamine, um, any sympathomimetic drug, but also get large with anticholinergic or anti-muscarinic drugs. And the way you can tell the difference is you shine a bright light in their eyes, and if their eyes, if their pupils react to the light, then it's more likely to be a sympathomimetic. And if they don't respond, it's more likely to be an anticholinergic. So it's a really nice hint. The other Clues with anticholinergic are they tend not to sweat, so their skin is very dry, their underarms are very dry, you know, everyone has a little bit of axillary sweat, they don't have any. Uh, their mouth looks very, very dry, and then their bowel sounds disappear as well, so um, you can listen for bowel sounds. We do, you know, when I'm looking for a toxidrome, when I'm looking at an overdose, there are certain things, and I think the eyes, the skin, and the uh, bowel sounds are the things that we don't necessarily stress in other disorders uh, are, are the things that I specifically go back in and look. So maybe on your first pass, when you're kind of assessing her airway, breathing, mm -hmm. circulation, you were less going to check those things because at that point it could have been any, any of the Correct. sepsis um, concerns or um, bleeds. Yeah, and I think emergency medicine is very much like that. If you, you know, it's not, you have to learn how to do things in a linear fashion. Uh, but once you learn that as a medical student, uh, once you get into emergency medicine, you realize it's more you realize it's more of a cyclical movement. You know, you walk in the room, you do some, you look at them quickly, you do something, you look at them again, you do something else, you get some more history, you get more physical exam, you do something else, and you narrow things down that way. I should have talked to you before we got our physical exam, but here's the information that we do have on our first pass. You see that in general, she's sleepy and nonsensical. She's oriented only to name. Her pupils are dilated and non-reactive to light. Otherwise, it's fairly benign. Her um, heart sounds tachycardic but regular. Her lungs are clear. Her abdomen's mildly tender but soft. No rebound or guarding. And her extremities are warm and well-perfused. 
So I think the one piece of information you just gave me, which would um, make me pause, and I think this is a really important skill in emergency medicine is, you know, I'm going down this pathway based on the age and the history and that this is an overdose, but um, most overdoses don't have abdominal tenderness. Now they can because they just, they have potentially 100 pills in their stomach. But just want to keep in the back of my brain also, you know, go back to the, go back to the spouse and ask about, has she had abdominal pain and vomiting? Has she been eating? Thinking about things like ruptured appy causing sepsis. Um, I don't think I specifically asked that, but uh, she didn't sound like she had any of those symptoms. But if she said, you know, if he said, yeah, or, you know, peri-umbilical pain that radiated down, the, migrated to the right lower quadrant, you know, two days ago, and then um, all was vomiting and had no, then I would certainly consider that. So at this point, we're kind of thinking of it as, um, uh, you know, maybe related to the ingestion. Um, but I want to keep that in the back of my brain. And it's a really important emergency medicine to stop when something doesn't make sense. You know, I always kind of think of like, you know, when a dog sees something, you know, like its ears go up, um, you got to stop and you got to reconsider and um, backpedal, take a look at the whole room and reassess. So I think that's an important thing to do right now. So how's your reports? No, nothing really. No belly pain, no nausea, vomiting that he was aware of. She's otherwise been in a normal state of health. And she has no medical problems besides the depression, on no medicines besides this one that we know of, no allergies that we know of, um, and she doesn't use recreational drugs that he knows of. No. So drink alcohol occasionally. Right. So I would concentrate right now on those IVs, that fluid, um, finding out what the glucose is, and then I would try to get the fluid in since so she's young and healthy and doesn't have a history of heart failure, get you know, a liter or two into her as quickly as possible. We have two large bore IVs. This should not take more than a few minutes with a pressure bag on each one of them. Yes, so um, so actually during this time your labs have come back. All right. <laughs> and for some reason you don't have vitals again. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I didn't get I'm the exact standing in the room. Well. <laughs> Um, she has not 100% gotten better. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So let's see. So tell me which labs you'd like to hear back about. The glucose, the, the blood glucose. I don't think this is going to be an abnormality, but, you know. No, you know, so un unrevealing. Just something to kind of keep in my brain as something to always check on altered mental status. It does not normally cause hypotension, <laughs> but, you know, I always kind of keep that as on my list of things to do. Um... I would like to see the EKG, and um, the as far as the labs go, um, I want to know if she has an acidosis, um, so her metabolic panel. I don't think I asked for a VBG, but that's something I would want um, with a lactate um, early on. So I'd love so to know if she has So you did get that. one, it turns out. Yes. Your trusty... Nurses are fantastic. Yeah, here. a trusty nurse ordered one for you. <laughs> So, um, so her pH is 7.31 and her lactate is 0 0.9. Okay. Well, that's pretty good. Um, and so why do you say that? Well, because, well, the lactate is normal, um, and the pH is 7.31. I think it said, no, do you have a PCO2 associated with that? Okay. So the question that is, so there's an acidosis, but the question is whether it's a metabolic or a respiratory acidosis. Um... Sounds like she is uh, ventilating okay on my exam, and she's got a SAT of 100%, so it's unlikely to be respiratory, though 
something to keep in my mind for as things go. No matter what the cause of this is, she could get worse and she could stop breathing or um, retain CO2 and that can cause an acidosis, a respiratory acidosis. Um, but so it sounds like she probably has a metabolic acidosis, but not particularly severe. I would be much more excited if you said 7.0. <laughs> um, that would be a very different story. But I would like to see if she has an anion gap, um, given that she has an acidosis now, and we can kind of figure that out. So she doesn't have a gap. But do you have a rough number where you think to yourself, gosh, I should be really worried about her acid-base status and sit down and just figure it out right now? Yeah, I mean, in these complex patients, we expect a little bit of acidosis, so I probably wouldn't get... I, I think the take-home is you should always analyze the acid-base status, and no matter what number you get, you figure out in your brain. Um, if this person has a very mild metabolic acidosis with a very slightly elevated anion gap, that's a different story from someone who comes in with um, an anion gap of 28 and a pH of 7.1. That is someone that I'm that is the cause of their problem, probably. Uh, in this case, you know, people who are critically ill can have a slight acidosis. So I think under 7.3, I would certainly get more excited, but I think no matter what, you have to think it through. And I would want to, you know, the PCO2 is really important here. If it's 50, then I'm not as excited about that pH of 7.3, though I am excited about the PCO2 being 50. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to tell you that it's, it's normal. It's normal. Fantastic. <laughs> So you're saying that as students, we don't get to kind of not quite understand acid base. We need to actually learn it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, you know, as time goes by and you know it more and more, you do it automatically in your brain. Um, but it is really important as you're learning to sit down with every single one and try to understand it. Sometimes you can't figure it all out, um, but it is often um, the case that you can figure it out and you can understand why their pH is low. Um, it, it might be slightly hyperperfusion from their blood pressure of 70 over 40, um, but it also might be another, um, another reason. So it's important to go through all the math uh, and all the thinking for every critical patient. All right. No free pass on acid base. What else do you want to follow up on? Well, I ordered a salicylate and I ordered a... Um, Those are still pending. Acetaminophen uh, and the EKG. So the EKG we can look at in just a moment, uh, but before we do that, let's just talk about the rest of the labs and what you might be looking for in somebody with altered mental status. Um, well, you know, as I said before, any altered mental status patient, I usually get, I want to know what the sodium is and the calcium is. Those are two things. I don't think that those will be the cause of the issue here because it's acute change in mental status. I would look at the creatinine and the BUN creatinine ratio to see if there's evidence of you know, uh, pre-renal, um, <clears throat> you know, dehydration as a cause of, partial cause of this hypotension. So if the BUN creatinine ratio is greater than 20, I would keep pushing fluids for sure. Um, that would be evidence that she was dehydrated before whatever happened, um, happened. Um, I mean, I would want to know what her hemoglobin and hematocrit are in case this is, uh, I can't, um, I, I don't think that this is a massive GI bleed with hypotension and um, tachycardia from that, but I would want to see it just in case. Um, the, the, the history and the age don't really fit. And you're right. The CMP and CBC are pretty unremarkable. There's just a slight white count to 12. And it's finally the time you've been waiting for. We can take a look at that EKG. 
For those of you listening along, you might want to pause it now. I'm going to post a link to the EKG on our website, emigcast.com. That's E-M-I-G-C-A-S-T dot com for, for you to be able to follow along. So just go to our website and look for the blog post for this episode, and you'll see a link there. So getting back to the EKG, can you talk us through how you would interpret it? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I, I, I you know, I want to look at this EKG because of the differential that I have, which is very high, as in, you know, overdose is very high on the list. Um, of course, if the, if I would want to know if the person had AFib or SVT, which is other things we think about with tachycardia. I have a very hard time believing a 20-year-old would get hypotensive from a heart rate of 130 from a supraventricular tachycardia or AFib, and that's why <clears throat> those are lower on my list. And, and, and the reason I want to look at is for the cardiotoxic effects of, of medication overdoses. So um, what I am seeing here is a very wide, complex tachycardia. Um, and it does look like there are P waves, that there's uh, the QRS is after a P, and um, the QRS is quite wide. I'm trying to get a measure. It looks to be about one large box, so about 200 milliseconds, if I have that estimate about right. <coughs> Um, QT looks to be, although I haven't measured, it looks to be long because the T wave is farther than one-half the way between the QRS complexes. So, um, and um, because overdoses are high on my list of um, differential, I'm going to look over AVR, which is the lead that no one ever looks at <laughs> unless you're looking for an overdose. Um, and what I see is a very large... Um, R wave that is wide and tall, which is very, very abnormal in an adult. Uh, and I think you said she was 20 years old. So these, all of this, this wide QRS, the long QT, the, um, ele the wide, tall R and AVR are all indicative of sodium channel blockers. Um, <clears throat> and putting that together in my brain, the sodium channel blockers are a big group of um, toxins, the most common of which are the tricyclic antidepressants. I just have to interject here for a moment to say he totally got it. He nailed it. I don't know why I didn't respond in the moment, but really nicely done. Anyway, back to the interview. Um, I think going together with the tachycardia, the hypotension, and the EKG that looks like this, the number one thing on my differential is tricyclic antidepressant overdose. Yeah, I think that we would. I would immediately treat this, and that would likely treat her hypotension and her conduction abnormalities. So, what would you treat it with? So, I would treat this with uh, sodium bicarbonate intravenously. Um, the sodium channel blockers block sodium channels. No big surprise there. <laughs> so the, if you think about the tricyclic sort of occupying the sodium channel, um, the idea of giving sodium bicarbonate is first and foremost to provide um, hypertonic sodium. So we're providing more sodium, we're making them transiently hypernatremic. And so when any of the sodium channels open, more sodium flows through. 
uh, when you, you know, think to your action potential in the phase zero, that fast sodium channel opening, um, if less sodium flows through because they're all occupied, it just slows down the QR, it slows down that phase zero and that widens the QRS. By providing more sodium <clears throat> very quickly, we will narrow the QRS um, and then improve their conduction. And on top of that, the, the other side of it is you're giving a hypertonic solution, so you'll increase their blood pressure because you'll, um, you'll have more fluid uh, trans distributing from the interstitial space uh, to the vascular space. <clears throat> so you'll fill up with more um, fluid and, and should solve the hypotension as well. And I know in school we worry a lot about giving hypertonic solutions. Mm -hmm, we sure so do. is this one of the indications to do it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the when I say it's hypertonic, it is, um, but we're giving it in pretty small amounts. Um, it, you know, it's eight point four percent sodium bicarbonate. It has a lot more sodium than say normal saline does. And she's um, also getting uh, that. We're and she's also getting that. Absolutely. So in this case, this is a case where her hemodynamic instability uh, mandates that we give a hypertonic solution. Um, we do have to worry about hypertonic solutions, of course. Um, in this case, we would monitor her sodium fairly closely. Um, but what happens in clinical practice is that we just don't see the problems that people have with hypertonic um, saline when we use it for, say, hyponatremia. And the reason is because um, we're giving this very, very quickly, and then it goes away, as opposed to when we're treating hyponatremia, and they took a week to get hyponatremic, <laughs> and now we fix it in five minutes. That would be, um, causes fluid shifts and can be problematic in the brain. So uh, this is a case where it's safe as long as we go toward, you know, uh, use the, the dosing that we usually use. And what I usually use is one to two amps, which is 50 milliliters of sodium bicarbonate. Um, and I would push that and get another EKG or watch the cardiac monitor and um, repeat the blood pressure. And then, of course, we would monitor sodium um, after that. Okay, excellent. To wrap up the case, your suspicions are confirmed when the husband returns with an empty bottle of dezipramine that he found back at the house. And now if we step back for a moment, I was wondering how you would think about the treatment in terms of the framework you've given us in the past for thinking about toxins. Specifically, you separated out what you can do supportively, what you can do to limit absorption, to enhance elimination, and are there any antidotes? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think um, we didn't really get to the GI decon part because I think that we started with supportive, and I think that's, yeah, I cannot stress supportive care. Um, you know, emergency physicians are the experts in resuscitation, and this is what we do really, really well, and it's basically supportive care. Um, supporting her will, um, will fix, you know, most problems uh, from overdoses. <clears throat> so the regular things, the monitoring, the IVs, the fluid boluses, the uh, EKG, you know, all of those things, doing that is really what makes a tremendous amount of difference. And then I start thinking through, like, what can I fix right now? What, what could I have an antidote for that would fix this whole problem? If she, you know, can I give naloxone to wake someone up, you know, if they're going to be intubated? Can I give them, check their sugar and make sure their glucose isn't four? Because um, I can fix that really quick. Um, and then is there a specific antidote? And 
you know, for tricyclic antidepressants or antidotes. And then I think about limiting the absorption. And <clears throat> with um, overdoses, the vast majority of cases, we don't have to give anything to limit absorption. Most people do quite well. Um, you know, if you take a few tablets of sertraline or something, you may have some symptoms, but you're probably not going to die. And so I don't get too excited about limiting their absorption. But when I hear someone that took something that's potentially lethal, and if I had known, you know, ahead at the beginning, and she had was totally asymptomatic, and she came in and said, I took 50 tablets of dizipramine, there's no question I would have thought, how can I stop her from getting symptoms? And I think the number one way we do that is to give activated charcoal. And the dose of that is 50 grams to 100 grams. And, um, and, and I think that in those cases where the ingestion was recent, like less than an hour or so, um, and there is a real chance that the person will have some ill effects from their um, overdose, <clears throat> then I think it's a reasonable thing to do. The downside of activated charcoal is that, um, you know, uh, uh, they have to have an intact airway. They have to be able to swallow and not aspirate the charcoal. And that is true of everything. They shouldn't be aspirate. We shouldn't be letting our patients aspirate stomach contents, and we certainly shouldn't be letting them aspirate charcoal. So um, we do have to be careful of that, and that's part of that supportive care. All and then right. I do think about trying to get the drug out, and then we think about things like hemodialysis and multi-dose activated charcoal. <clears throat> In this case, um, I think the most important thing is supportive and antidotes, you know, um, good supportive care and sodium bicarbonate um, will get you through this case uh, most of the time. And it's not something that is, gets better with hemodialysis. And what's in your head is the most likely reason that she could go downhill quickly? So <clears throat> tricyclic antidepressants in particular are um, uh, pretty awful overdoses. And they will go from being fairly well to very, very, very sick very, very quickly. Um, and the reasons why they get ill is for some of the reasons she already had. One is the altered conduction in their heart. <clears throat> if you widen your QRS and you widen your QT, you know, you don't have that many other intervals. <laughs> you know, <laughs> conduction is not very good. And so um, you have incoordinated uh, conduction in your heart, your cardiac output drops, your, uh, you're already at hypotension from alpha antagonism of the tricyclic antidepressants. So they have refractory hypotension. Um, they also can have um, seizures, and seizures are particularly dangerous with tricyclic antidepressants because when you have a seizure, your pH drops very quickly, and when your pH drops very quickly, um, in particular, this is just an effect of the tricyclic antidepressants, they bind more to the heart, to the sodium channels at lower pHs, and so <clears throat> there is this thing that people have talked about called the talk and die phenomenon or walk and die phenomenon where people look quite well after a tricyclic antidepressant overdose, develop some mild symptoms, have a seizure, have uh, widened QRS, ventricular tachycardia, and die. So we're very, very careful. These patients can, uh, with particular tricyclic antidepressants, can get sick very, very quickly. So, so where would you ICU see ICU for okay. sure. <laughs> yeah, this is an ICU admission for sure. Um, there's debate about whether um, if my sodium bicarbonate in, you know, boluses worked, there's some debate about whether we start them on a bicarb drip or not, or just monitor them in the ICU and keep giving boluses as needed. 
um, of, you know, there's arguments either way. And, uh, and that's really <clears throat> what I would do for them at this point. It's really just very careful watching, and if, um, you know, their altered mental status gets worse, they're de if their mental status becomes more depressed, then they may need to be intubated. They have seizures, they need to have their seizures treated, and if they have continue to have hypotension, they need to have that treated as well. And then QRS monitoring and QT prolongation monitoring throughout the night. Perfect. And I think we're going to wrap up the case here. With our remaining time, I'm hoping to ask you a few more general questions. First off, would you mind giving the audience a little background on your role and how you got there? Sure. Yeah, I am uh, um, did my emergency medicine residency at Medical College of Pennsylvania, which is now Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and stayed there for two more years to do my toxicology fellowship. So now I'm a, an associate professor of emergency medicine here at OHSU and also the associate medical director for the Poison Center and a toxicologist on campus. Would have to be really good at OCHEM to. No, be a not at all. So what I always say is, you know, because I think there's an impression that like only the really smart people will do fellowships in toxicology. I think the fellowship makes you smart. You know, a great example is you know TCA overdose, right? So you learn about TCA overdose, but that also teaches you a lot about the cardiac cycle, and so now you understand QT prolongation, QRS widening. You understand um, a lot more about cardiology. You understand why those anti-dysrhythmics that block the sodium channel work. <laughs> you understand which drug is better to use in someone who has AFib. And so it is not just learning about overdoses. It, you learn a lot about medicine. And I think that is one of the real keys. And that's what I love about doing this is that um, I am constantly constantly learning. I Every night I'm on call, I learn something. And there are times when I am looking stuff up, you know, because someone took something that no one has ever taken, <laughs> ever. And you are, and that's where all those weird, you know, the, the, the sort of stereotypes about toxicologists <laughs> and organic chemistry is. You're looking at the structure and you're trying to figure out what's similar to it and, you know, but you're kind of, it's kind of a lot of detective work. And so, um, it's exciting. It's fun. It keep it's it's medicine, uh, kind of on the edge. Huh. I don't think I can top that. So I'm gonna leave it here, and I want to give a huge thank you to the brilliant and ever eloquent Dr. Rob Hendrickson, as well as a thank you to Josh Cornegie. He provided this case for us, and he's also an advisor to EMIGCast.